So if you've got a Bible, then you may want to open it, Matthew chapter, actually Matthew chapter 3, because we're going to read the last three verses of Matthew chapter 3 together, and then we'll look at Matthew 4, 1 to 11. So um, there's some Bibles in your pews. If you haven't got a Bible on your pew, then maybe go on your phone and get it, but don't go on Instagram. Jesus is watching. Um, if not, you can just listen to what... Um, that's what I'm going to say. So obviously this is the start of Lent and this is the first Sunday in Lent. I'm sure lots of you are having pancakes on Tuesday. And Lent is a time where Christians intentionally focus on spiritual disciplines, on fasting, on praying, on reading the scriptures so that we can grow in Christ-likeness, so that we can look more like Jesus. And so this passage that we're looking at today is actually really, really helpful for us as we look at some of these things together. So Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, and we'll read through to chapter 4, verse 11. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, the devil said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift up, they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And this I will give you, the devil said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. So as I said, this is Lent. Um, what we're going to do at the start of this talk is we're just going to use a beautiful prayer that the Church of England have written for Lent. Um, just for us to pray together so that we might just prepare our hearts to receive all that God has for us in his word tonight. So it's going to come up on the screen and let's pray this together. Almighty and everlasting God, you hate nothing that you have made and forgive the sins of all those who are penitent. Create and make in us new and contrite hearts that we worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness may receive from you, the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So I encourage you, whether you're here this afternoon or you're listening online, on Spotify or through the website, whatever it is that you're doing, just to use this prayer throughout Lent um, every single day. Um, I'm going to pray it every morning and it's just going to set up 
my day for following Jesus throughout this season. So you can get it on the Church of England website. Um, it's on, I think it's somewhere on the St. Thomas's website. So let's maybe use this together as a church community. So today we're looking at Jesus in the wilderness and he's being tempted by the devil. Now, the reason that I read out the verses, um, the last couple of verses from, Luke, uh, from Matthew chapter 3 is because all of this comes in the context of Jesus' baptism. So Jesus has just come to John to be baptised. We looked at this, if you remember, about three or four weeks ago. He'd just come to John to be baptised and we get this glorious picture, this glorious glimpse into the very heart of God and into the Trinity. We see the Father Loving the Son, loving the Spirit, loving the Father, loving the Spirit, loving the Son, loving the Father. And that's been going on for all of time. And in Jesus' baptism, we get a little glimpse into it. The Son comes to be baptised. The Father speaks words of affirmation over the Son. This is my Son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And then we see the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus in the form of a dove, empowering him towards the cross and resurrection. And it's in this context that we read about Jesus in the wilderness today. So, Matthew 4, verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, we don't often think about this. Sometimes I think when we think about Jesus in the wilderness, and we just think it, maybe the devil led him there to tempt him. Um, maybe Jesus just thought it was a cool thing to do, and then the devil got him when he was weak or whatever. But no, it was the Holy Spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Why? That seems like quite an odd thing for, to happen, doesn't it? Well, I hope that, that will become, the answer to that question, why the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, will become clear as we go through these verses together. Now, there's a few things that I think um, God has for us tonight on the back of these verses. Firstly is the importance of spiritual disciplines. The importance of spiritual disciplines. Now, look at verse 2. After fasting for 40 days, Jesus was hungry, Matthew says. Now go figure. If you'd been fasting for 40 days, I bet that you would be hungry too. Now remember, Jesus has fasted for 40 days, so he's not eaten anything for 40 days. He's not seen anybody for 40 days, so he's hungry. He's not seen anybody. If that was me, I'd be pretty lonely. And he's um, not had a proper bed to sleep on for 40 days. So he's probably tired as well. And it's in this context that we get introduced to Jesus encountering the devil, the tempter in verse three. Now think about it logically. If you were the devil and you wanted to get somebody, your, your strategy for getting them might be to try and get them when they are at their weakest. You know, if you're hungry, for example, you're for, far more likely when you walk past your favourite takeaway on the way home late at night to go into that takeaway and buy that your favourite takeaway again for the third or the fourth time that week when you know that it's a bad thing to do. Some of you are laughing because you do it. If you're fasting... Say you've been fasting for a couple of days. I've done this before. I've fasted for a couple of days. I know that I've got like an emergency Snickers somewhere buried at the bottom of my bag. I know that it's there. When I'm really hungry, I'm really tempted to go for it. When I know that I've set aside the time not to eat and to fast. Or if you're really tired and you're irritable, how much more easy is it to be tempted to give in to being snappy and short with people or resentful towards people? Now, I think that the devil's strategy is basically, he thinks, right, 
Jesus is hungry. He's been alone. He's probably tired. I'm going to attack Jesus right now while he's at his weakest. Surely he'll give in to my temptations when he's in this state of weakness. But the devil's strategy is not a good one. Why? Well, the problem with this strategy, strategy is that Jesus is actually not at his weakest at all here. He's actually at his strongest. How? Well, think about it. Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days. He's been fasting. He's been praying. He's been meditating on the scriptures. He's done nothing but spend time with his father. He's been in deep prayer. He's probably had these really intimate moments as intimate as what we've just seen in Jesus' baptism. He's been meditating on the scriptures. Jesus is actually not at his weakest now, but he's at his strongest. Now, the Bible is making it clear to us that if you want to be able to resist temptation, you've got to remember the spiritual disciplines. Fasting, praying, reading the scriptures, Giving. You know, some things that Jesus assumes his disciples are going to do. The Bible doesn't say if you fast. In fact, Jesus says when you fast. The Bible doesn't say if you pray. The Bible, Jesus says in Matthew, um, in Matthew just a few, verse, um, few verses on from here in the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray. Jesus doesn't say if you give. He says when you give. These are the spiritual disciplines that lead us to flex and grow our spiritual muscles. Now, when you're engaged in the spiritual disciplines, you're much less likely to give into temptation and to sin. Leonard Ravenhill put it like this, the sinning person stops praying and the praying person stops sinning. Now, how true is that? Remember the spiritual disciplines. What are you going to do this Lent? How are you going to set aside some time to pray, extra time to worship, to meditate on the word of God? Now, one spiritual discipline that I really want to focus on today is our handling and our understanding of scripture. Notice that every single time the devil attacks Jesus, he says, you know, if you are the son of God, Jesus, then why don't you do this? Every single time the devil attacks Jesus, Jesus responds by saying, it is written. Man shall not live on bread alone. It is written. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It is written. Now, question for us then is, if Jesus didn't presume to overcome the attacks of the enemy without a handling and a knowledge of scripture, how on earth can you or I presume to overcome the attacks of the enemy without, a handling, without handling and good knowledge of the scriptures? The Bible is truth. It's power. It's life. We see in here that Jesus processes all of his thoughts through the scriptures. Now, I'm going to play a little game with us that I've um, devised called Bible or Not Bible. And um, this is just to get us thinking about the importance of Scripture and just to see how well we know it. And I'm not expecting you to get 100% on this because I might not even get 100% on it. So what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to stand. And we're going to play a little game called Bible or Not Bible. And if you think that the quote that I read out is from the Bible, you're to stand 
If you think that it's not from the Bible, you're to sit down. Okay, so here's the first, here's the first um, quote. The end of a matter is better than its beginning and patience is better than pride. If you think that's the Bible, remain standing. If it's not the Bible, sit down. The end of a matter is better than its beginning and patience is better than pride. For those of you that are standing, I see there's one vicar standing in the room. There's another sat down. Uh, that is the Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 9. Okay, everyone up again. And though in all lands love is now mingled with grief, it still flows perhaps the greater. And though in all lines, lands love is now mingled with grief, it still grows perhaps the greater. Stand up for Bible, sit down for not Bible. Ollie, Dave. That is from Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship <laughs> of the Ring. <laughs> okay, everyone stay seated this time and we'll do the opposite. So stand up if you think this is the Bible. We can stand affliction better than we can prosperity, for in prosperity we will forget God. If you think that's the Bible, stand up. If you think it's not the Bible, sit down. We can stand affliction better than we can prosperity, for in prosperity we forget God. No one's going to be brave. You're all correct. That's a quote from a Reverend Moody sermon. Okay, remain seated. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Okay, you're all right. That, of course, is Jesus in Luke chapter 12. Jesus teaching on financial giving remains standing. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. <laughs> it sounds like it could be a psalm, something that David may have written. That is actually a poem written by William Cowper in the 18th century. Okay, everyone stands. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. Stand up for Bible, sit down for not Bible. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. You're all correct. That, of course, is Jesus teaching on the Holy Spirit in John chapter 3. Next one. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Sit down for not Bible, stand for Bible. Most of you are just following the crowd at this point. Is that a wise thing to do or a not wise thing to do? Well done, all of you that stood. That's Mark chapter 3, verse 25. Okay, a couple more. This above to all thine own self be this above all to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day. Thou canst not then be false to any man. Bible or not Bible? Jake, very brave. That is Shakespeare. The giveaway that that wasn't the Bible is that it says to your own self be true, which of course flies in the face of everything that the Bible says. But anyway, never mind. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's all stand again. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. 
Stand for Bible, sit for not Bible. Live in harmony with one another, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position, do not be conceited. Well done, all of you. That's Paul in Romans chapter 12. Okay, last one. Heed the word of the Lord, or the dead will rise again possessed by demons, and ye who are unclean shall be damned forever and ever in eternal fire. I can hear a few of you asking, is that revelation? Is that something from the middle bits of Isaiah? That's from the film, Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> okay, a silly game, but we pl I play it just to make the point. Um, get, get to know your Bible. Read it, digest it, listen to it, set aside time for it. Engage in the spiritual disciplines. Now, the second thing that I think Matthew wants us to get from this is for us to see that Jesus is saviour. These verses show us that where we have failed, Jesus has succeeded. Jesus has succeeded where we have failed. Now, how do we know that this is what Matthew wants us to get from this? Well, the verses, all three verses that Jesus quotes at the devil in these 11 verses in Matthew chapter 4, all come from just a couple of chapters in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, so Jesus seems to have been meditating on the book of Deuteronomy for these 40 days that he's been in the wilderness. He's been thinking about these verses a lot. And um, I've, I, one of them comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is just after God's people have got out from spending 40 years in the wilderness. So God's people have left Egypt. They've been in the wilderness for 40 years before they can then make their journey towards the promised land. Now, this is really significant. Why? Well, Israel, God's people, spent so long in the wilderness because they could not keep the commands of God. They kept giving in to temptation. Now, Jesus was thinking about this particular bit of the history of the people of God, because, of course, Jesus was having his own wilderness moment. Jesus was having his time in the wilderness. Now, Matthew is wanting us to draw some parallels between Israel, God's people, and Jesus. So Israel was tested in the wilderness. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. Israel got hungry. God's people got hungry while they were in the desert and they were fed by manna from heaven. Jesus got hungry when he was in the wilderness. And in verse 11, we're told, aren't we, that God sent his angels to attend to Jesus, to feed him, to look after him. Israel is called God's son in the scriptures. Jesus has just been revealed as the son of God. Israel had just had a baptism of sorts. They'd gone from Egypt into the wilderness by going through the Red Sea, leaving behind all their oppression and slavery and sin, going through the water and coming out on the other side, being led by God. Jesus has just had his baptism in the verses immediately prior to this. So what's Matthew doing here? Well, the word of God is saying, look, when God's people were in the wilderness, they messed up. They couldn't keep the commands of God. But when Jesus was in the wilderness, when Jesus was having his wilderness moment, he overcame the devil and won. Jesus succeeded where the people of God 
had failed. Now, what are we to draw from this? Well, Jesus succeeds every single time we fail. Jesus has won where we have failed and let God down and done stuff that we know that we shouldn't have done. Jesus does what we could not do. We're imperfect, but Jesus is perfect. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. And he rose again so that we could be free and know redemption. Israel was supposed to be a blessing to the nations and a light to the Gentiles. Through Israel, through God's people, all of the world was supposed to be blessed. We know that as far back as Genesis and the covenant that God made with Abraham. I'm blessing you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. God's people were supposed to be a light to the rest of the world, but they couldn't do it. But Jesus does do it. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he's going to draw people from every tribe and every tongue to himself. But it will mean going to death. And as Paul writes in Philippians 2, even death on a cross. Jesus has succeeded where we have failed. Now, the third thing that we're to get from these verses this afternoon is this whole thing of identity. Matthew wants us to see that identity comes from heaven and God, not from earth and other people. So think about it. Jesus has just been affirmed in his heavenly, his true identity. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus' identity was set through his relationship with the Father and the Spirit. It was set by heaven, by God. Jesus' identity didn't come from his friends. It didn't come from his parents. It didn't come from anything other than heaven. Now, the, sh the same should be true of you. Your identity does not come from how clever you are, how attractive you feel. It, doesn't come, it shouldn't come from your friends, your parents, your circumstances, the country that you were born in. God gets to define who you are. The word of God gets to define who you are. Now notice that it's just been revealed that Jesus is the son of God. So what does the devil do? Well, the devil's main strategy to, to, to tempt Jesus is to basically get Jesus to question his identity. So notice every temptation that comes, every single temptation. In verse um, three, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Verse five, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Verse eight, all of this I will give you, Jesus. You're God, you, if you're really God's son, you can have all of this, but you've got to worship me first. If you really are the son of God. Satan is trying to undermine the identity, the God-given identity that Jesus has just been given. Now, we know that this is the devil's strategy because he gives it away here. So if the devil was to attack you, 
to undermine you, what's one of the main things he's going to do? He's going to get you to question your identity. He's going to get you to question your adoption into the family of God. He's going to get you to question whether you really are a child of God and whether God really does love you. Tim Keller puts it like this. Satan does not control us with fang marks on the flesh, but with lies in the heart. This is what he will do with you as well. So have you ever thought, if I, if I really am a child of God, then why don't I like the way that I look? If I really am a child of God, then why aren't I doing better at university? If I really am a child of God, then why aren't I as popular as so-and-so over there? If I really am a child of God, then why haven't I forgiven myself for that thing that happened years and years and years ago? Now, we ask ourselves these questions all of the time. So what should we do when these questions come? Well, when these questions come, what we should do is grab a Bible. And when we hear these lies, what we should do, for example, if we question, you know, if I really am a child of God, then why don't I feel like I'm forgiven? Why can't I forgive myself? Grab yourself a Bible and say over your own life, it is written that God has removed my sins as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103. Or when you question, you know, if I really am loved by God, then why do I feel so distant from God? Is it it's something that must have been something that I've done? He could never, ever want to be in a relationship with me. Grab yourself a Bible. It is written that nothing in all of creation, nothing in heaven or on earth will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Romans. When these lies come, grab yourself a Bible and say, it is written, because the Bible is God's truth. Not the lies that have been spoken over us, not the lies that we, be that we believe about ourselves. The Bible is God's truth. And so for those of us that are carrying lies, those of us that are questioning our God-given identity, those of us that are questioning whether God really does love us, even those of us that have put our trust in Jesus, those lies should stay in this place tonight. And we go out proclaiming, it is written, I am a child of God. Now look, the devil always wants to point to your performance. He'll always try and say, you're not good enough at this. You're not good at that, enough at that. You're not good enough with this person. You're not good enough in that situation. The Holy Spirit, however, will only ever point to your position. That you've been adopted, rescued, set free, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. And we need to leave this place knowing that this afternoon. The reason that we need to leave this place knowing that is because behavior always follows identity. Behavior always follows identity. I was talking to somebody relatively recently um, who is a Christian, had um, been following Jesus for a few years. And they said to me, and this was absolutely heartbreaking, they said to me that nobody, not a single person in their life had ever told them that they were loved. 
Nobody had ever gone up to this person and said, I love you. They'd never heard their parents say it. They'd never heard it from a friend, at least not that they could remember. They'd never heard, they'd never heard it. And so they didn't know that they were loved. Now, their behavior was following their identity. And I've noticed that this often in the years that I've been in full-time ministry, I've noticed that this is often what happens. Behavior follows identity. So if you've never been told that you're loved, there's a strong chance that you're going to behave in a way that isn't lovable because you've already resigned yourself to the fact that nobody could ever love you. Some of you may have been told by a teacher or by a parent or by somebody in your family or a friend that you will never be good at anything. If that lie takes root in your heart, you'll begin to live out that identity. You'll begin to live out the fact that you'll never be good at anything and you'll stop putting effort into things and you'll stop trying. Some of you have been told that you'll never have a friend, perhaps. And if that's you, if you're not careful, you'll begin to live out that identity. Behavior always follows identity. And that's why I think the most secure and confident people in the world and there are often people that just know their God-given identity. It's not people being arrogant. It's not people being proud. It's just people living out the fact that they know that they're forgiven, set free, and all of these things. Now, there was a science experiment, like a sociological experiment, that a teacher did in the 1960s in the United States. And this, te I don't know all the details of the experiment, but just from what I do remember of it from when I studied psychology, um, this teacher got into their classroom one day, it was a primary school, and just said to the class that she'd been teaching for a while, right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide you into people with brown eyes and people with blue and green eyes. And so the class was split in half and they sat on different sides of the room. And the teacher said, right, so those of you with brown eyes, you've got to know that you are far cleverer, you're smarter, you're more confident and you're kinder than the children with blue or green eyes. And within days, actually within hours, the, the kids with brown eyes started behaving a lot more confidently. They started to do better in test results. They started, to, they started to do better in class. Kids that were doing really well with brown and green eyes suddenly started making really stupid mistakes in exams, started slipping up, started to have a, you know, lower confidence. One pupil even asked the teacher who herself had um, blue or green eyes, I can't remember now. Um, someone said, um, why, why aren't you the principal? of the school and another kid shouted out just with no explanation, it's because she's not got brown eyes and so she can't, she's not clever enough to be the principal. Now what was going on in this situation? Well, people were beginning to live out the identity that had been spoken over them because behavior always follows identity. Now what is the best identity that you could have? To know that you've been adopted, that you're loved, that you're a child of God. And the more that that can take root in our hearts, the better chance we have of living out what that means. Now, the last thing that I just want us to look at is um, some of these temptations that um, the devil basically offers to Jesus. Now, the heart of the temptation to turn rock into bread is basically the lie of control. You know, there'd be nothing necessarily wrong with Jesus turning a rock into bread. I mean, he does lots of other things, like he stills a storm. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus takes water and turns it into wine. There was nothing wrong with that. Um, but at the heart of this temptation is that the devil wants Jesus to take control rather than submitting to the will of his father in heaven. 
Jesus knows that the father has asked him to set aside 40 days to fast and that the word of God is going to provide for Jesus. This was a temptation of control. Now, we all get tempted by control. Some of us are more control. Some of us are control freaks. Some of us have to be in control of our own lives. Now, what we need to take away from this temptation today is, are we going to recognize that Jesus is Lord of our life? Or are we going to proclaim with our actions, with our thoughts, with our words, that I want to be Lord and King of my own life? We're all tempted in this way all of the time. Now, what we should do is grab a Bible when we're tempted like this and say, it is written, Jesus is Lord. He's in control. Now, at the heart of the temptation for Jesus to throw himself off a tall building, because surely God's going to send angels to protect you, Jesus, is basically the devil trying to get Jesus to ask, am I sure that the Father loves me? This temptation is about the assurance of love. Now, the thing is that you don't have to get somebody to prove to you that they love you if you know that they really love you. So when I go home from work I don't, and I see Ellie, if she's at home or when she comes home um, and I'm at home before her or whatever, I don't have to say to Ellie, right, Ellie, today you have to prove to me that you love me. That'd be ridiculous. I know that she loves me. I don't have to ask for constant demonstrations of her love. But this is what, Jesus, this is what the devil wants to get Jesus to do. Now, all of us from time to time struggle to believe that we are loved. All of us struggle to believe this from time to time. The question is, are we going to be tempted to look for assurance of love in all of the wrong places, in relationships that aren't healthy, in sex, in, um, in power, in positions of authority, in what we can achieve? Or are we going to look to the Father in heaven? Now, this is just common human condition stuff. Some of us even struggle to receive assurances of God's love. We struggle to receive compliments. We struggle to receive praise. We struggle to, to hear that we're loved or that we've done something well. And at the heart of that struggle is this, a lack of assurance that you are loved. And if that is you, there's healing and freedom and all kinds of things for you tonight. If you would step in to what God has for you and you can proclaim it is written. At the heart of the final temptation, I will give you all of the kingdoms of the world, Jesus, if you bow down and worship me, is the temptation to take shortcuts. It's the temptation not to be patient. Now, how do we know this? Well, think about it. Jesus knows that he's going to inherit all of the kingdoms of the world. Jesus is the son of the father. Jesus is the heir of everything. And for those of us that belong to Jesus, we're co-heirs with him. We're going to inherit everything in all of creation with Jesus. Jesus knows that this is all going to be his. But for now, he's on the earth and he knows that he's got the cross coming. He knows that he's got Calvary coming. He knows that he's got the most excruciating death coming. So what's the devil doing here? Well, he's saying to Jesus, Jesus, if you want all of these kingdoms of the world and you want it now, I'll give it to you. Just bow down and worship me. You won't have to go to the cross. You won't have to deal with Calvary. Just bow down before me and I'll give you everything. 
Now, how often are we tempted to take shortcuts? We won't wait in relationships. We won't wait on the Lord. We want the fast track to success rather than going through, you know, disciplines and training and all of these types of things. Shortcuts are usually not the best way. God's way is the best way. Now, there's a lot in these 11 verses. So how are we going to respond? Well, firstly, I encourage you just even now on the back of a, use one of the New Testament Thomas's cards or whatever, just write, what are you going to do this Lent to make sure that spiritual disciplines take a priority in your life? How are you going to take time to read the scriptures, to fast, to pray, to look at your giving, all of these kinds of things? Secondly, what are we going to do to recognize this Lent that Jesus has succeeded where we have failed? How are we going to respond to, to him? Maybe we can practice the attitude of thanksgiving, the attitude of gratitude, as some people call it, and just write down the things that we're really thankful for. Because Jesus has done what we could not do. Perhaps you know that you don't trust the identity that God has given you. You don't believe it. You don't believe that God could love you. You don't believe that he's adopted you into his family. You don't believe that you could be loved. Perhaps a lie has been spoken over you. What are you going to do this Lent to make sure that you trust the promises of God and not the lie? And fourthly, for those of us that are tempted in sit by, by sin, what are we going to do to be like Jesus and not succumb to these temptations of money, sex, power, control, shortcuts? What are you going to do this Lent? How are you going to invite the Holy Spirit to help you? to look more like Jesus so that we can shine as a light in the world. Can I invite us to stand together?